Welcome to Swim Streams Podcast. This podcast is hosted by Krish Subramanian, founder and chief research advisor at Risha.research. Krish will talk to developers and other engineers about distributed applications and how they are using Swim platform to build their applications. This podcast is sponsored by Swim, a platform to build massively real-time streaming applications. Let us now move on to today's episode. Industrial automation is one area where newer technologies are completely reshaping the landscape. Today, I am going to sit with Michael Keller, who is an expert in industrial automation, to discuss how the field has evolved over the last several decades. And I am also going to talk to him about how they are leveraging Swim platform to build some innovative use cases. And I am optimistic that this is going to be a great conversation. Michael, can you introduce yourself, talk about your experience in the field, and uh, talk about your association with SWIM. So my name is Michael Keller, and I've worked in the area of industrial automation for over 35 years. Most of that time has been uh, working with the world's largest company that's focused solely on industrial automation. I spent several years in the field working on commissioning of automation control systems And that included everything from sensors to motor control to logic controllers and operator interface. And this was on various types of industrial applications. I also spent about 20 years designing, implementing, and managing the development of several PC-based software tools. More recently, I spent about 10 years as a systems architect defining the technology architecture for large-scale automation control systems. And then most recently, I spent a few years working directly for the CTO uh, to define the company's strategy to deliver deliver analytic solutions as integrated features on an industrial automation control system. And my exposure to SWIM started over two years ago. Um, At that time, we were engaged in a proof of concept of the SWIM technology. And the goal of that was to, to do two things. One was to verify that the technology was actually valid and actually worked. And the other uh, goal of that activity was to verify that it had applicability in the industrial automation space. Wow. 35 years of experience means we can learn a lot from you. Can you talk about the history of industrial automation and how technology has shaped this evolution? So that's a pretty broad scoped topic. Uh, what I'll do is I'll just touch on some of the high points as I've observed them over the years. And some of these go back even before my time. I think one of the biggest events, which most people are probably aware of, is uh, the innovation of the assembly line by Ford. So that kind of kicked off a whole new revolution in manufacturing, and it was kind of the beginning of industrial automation. So a lot of the concepts from that have been used over the years and have been improved on. So for the early period of industrial automation, a lot of the uh, control was done using uh, mechanical uh, apparatus. So it would be gears and and shift uh, shafts and pulleys and other mechanical apparatus. It also went through a a period of electrical uh, control. So solenoids, relays, motor generators, discrete electronics, That lasted for quite a few years, several decades, in fact. 
then there was a major change that occurred in 1968, and that was with the invention of the Programmable Logic Controller, or more generally known as the PLC. And that ushered in kind of a whole new age for industrial automation because now the mechanical and electrical systems were replaced with a basically a computer-based system. And a lot of the early PLCs were dedicated computers and they ran uh, very specific and proprietary programs. Um, during that same period in the 70s and 80s, there was also some use of mini computer-based systems. There were VAC systems and a couple other systems. Those were used primarily for things like MES and scheduling type systems. It didn't last very long, partly because of the next major event. And that next major event was the invention of the PC in 1981. That changed everything, both uh, outside of industrial automation as well as um, within industrial autom automation. So the PC enabled movement towards a software-based solution. So prior to that, it was primarily electrical, uh, electronic, hard, um, discrete electronic components and mechanical. The PC moved it then in the direction of software-based systems. Um, after that occurred, there was a period of time when most of the software tools were focused on things like configuration, of devices and systems, programming, maintenance, operators, panels, and, and so forth. And that lasted quite a while, uh, probably a good 20, 25 years. And it is still in use today. There's still a, a pretty significant portion of industrial automation that is programmed and controlled by PC-based software tools. Um, there was also some higher level systems that began to develop, and these things would be things like supervisory control, data systems, remote monitoring, and those started uh, probably a couple decades ago, and they are now very active uh, in modern times. So remote monitoring in particular is uh, a big deal today. Uh, the next uh, major jump, which is kind of where we're at today, and that is moving from um, control and supervise both machine control and supervisory control as the primary focus, uh, to now is information processing. So recent technology in the areas of artificial intelligence, machine learning, analytics, uh, information solutions, those are now starting to make their way into industrial automation. Um, most of the applications today are focused in that area, are focused in cloud, uh, in the cloud using systems that are non-traditionally focused on industrial automation. So you, things, you see things like Azure, AWS, and some other um, cloud-based systems that are, are now becoming players in industrial automation. Um, what's interesting is that over time, industrial automation has really followed the technology of the world at large. But what's also interesting is that it generally, generally lags by at least 10, maybe 15 years. Um, it is probably not sustainable to lag that much because of the rate of change of technology in the world. And we'll talk a little bit more as we, as we continue our discussion here. I totally agree with you. There is no space for uh, laggards in today's economy. Can we dig a little deeper into the last part of the history you talked about, especially the evolution of cloud services? I want to understand the role played by cloud services, especially with commoditized hardware, making it easy 
for organizations to embrace industrial automation? So actually, I think one of the, the things that is missed uh, uh, fairly often is that uh, there's technology changes that occurred that have occurred in the last decade or 15 years or so, and they're pretty significant changes. Um, but one of the things that's really driving the industry has really very little to do with technology. I wanted to poke into that a little bit, um, and that is there's some socioeconomic changes that are occurring. What a lot of manufacturers are experiencing is that the workforce is dwindling. So the number of people that actually want to work in a factory is, uh, is dwindling significantly. And so what that does is it puts a burden on manufacturers to find alternative solutions. Uh, fortunately, the technology has um, changed over the last couple decades so that there are now new systems in place that could be leveraged to help with that. So to be more specific, um, as I mentioned before, there's a stronger focus on uh, information and data and data processing uh, to gain in insights into both the machine operation as well as the larger system. Um, and those are being driven both from the technology side and that you have uh, technology providers that have capabilities that can be uh, applied in the industrial automation space, but they're also being driven by some of these other socioeconomic uh, changes. Um, the demand, another thing that's happening is that there is, there is an increasing demand for custom and small runs. So the need for agile manufacturing capabilities is pushing the industry to rethink how to model and, and the uh, control systems. So for example, um, there may be a, a trucking fleet that wants to have tires and instead of having the brand name of the tire manufacturer, they want to have uh, their trucking fleet name on the tires and they want it in orange. Um, so there's this movement towards smaller, more custom manufacturing. So what all these things are driving towards is information-driven systems um, as well as highly agile systems. So the other thing that's happening is that a lot of the U.S.-based industrial automation equipment is getting old, so it needs to be replaced. Uh, the question is, what do you replace it with? And the technology that's emerging is a good candidate to replace what's there today. So as you mentioned, a lot of the hardware that is in industrial automation control systems has basically become commoditized. So things like uh, motor control and PLCs and operator interfaces, uh, different manufacturers have certainly have unique capabilities, but the primary control systems and the functions that those perform are pretty much the same. So the question is, what do we do to, to solve this issue of uh, the changing workforce as well as um, outdated equipment and the, the need to be able to be more efficient, more effective on uh, both controlling the system as well as uh, predicting what the system may need to do and, and to become agile. So, to do that, there is a much greater focus on the use of information and information solutions. And that's, um, to date, most of that solution has been driven top-down from cloud-based applications. And the issue with that is that uh, most of the information then has to be pushed to the cloud and has to be processed in the cloud. 
And a lot of the industrial automation control systems, the control is done in the machinery. So uh, there's a challenge there. Um, and we can talk about that uh, if you would like. I could totally see how some of the socioeconomic challenges are led to organizations embracing information systems as the foundation of industrial automation. You talked about the challenges while using cloud uh, with the industrial automation. Let's dig a little deeper into that. Let's try to understand what are some of the challenges organizations face. Also, organizations want to deploy their applications more in an agile way. Let's also try to understand how it impacts industrial automation. So I think one of the challenges is that um, in industrial automation, there is a huge amount of information that is generated. So one of the challenges um, is how do you effectively process that large amount of information in a manner that's useful and time effective? That's one uh, challenge. We'll talk a little bit about that. And I think the other challenge is how do you design a control architecture uh, that is agile and is able to morph over time um, with relative ease. So regarding the information processing, um, through myself as well as a number of people through experimentation as well as through observation, um, we have come to the conclusion that the answer is, is not to just indiscriminately dump everything to the cloud and then enlist an army of data scientists and, and machine learning, learning algorithms and then hopefully discover something useful. It's not to say that the cloud-based applications are not useful. They certainly have value, um, but they don't answer everything. So perhaps a more effective approach is to adopt a layered component architecture uh, where the information is acquired and processed as close to the origination point as possible. In that manner, the results of the processing can be acted upon as deep in the system as possible. So, for example, um, if there's a sensor, a photo eye, for instance, and you're able to analyze in the photo eye that the lens is dirty, well, then you would want to, to uh, uh, analyze that and perhaps adjust for that in the photo eye rather than sending data to the cloud, having a cloud application analyze it, sending some signal back to something else that then sends it back to the photo eye and says, adjust your resolution or whatever it is. Um, and you could take that same type of example and apply it at, at several different layers through the control system. So by, by pushing the, the information uh, processing deeper into the system, Overall, the overall complexity of the system actually is reduced because you are doing fairly uh, small focused activities at the point or close to the point of the information generation. Now, certainly you can take results from that and push it to higher la layers in an architecture. You can take some of the raw data and push it to higher layers if necessary and if it's useful. But to perform all of the diagnostic, or to, to take all of the information and push it to the cloud. Uh, for First of all, there isn't enough bandwidth to do that, but even if there was, I would argue that architecturally it still makes greater sense um, to push the processing and the reaction to the results deeper into the system. And that way it gives you, it gives you a, uh, a simpler overall system. So use the different layers for what they're useful for. Um, the other thing is that 
by pushing the information processing and the response to it deeper into the system, um, that enables automation control systems to then uh, possibly use things like machine learning, uh, data processing um, as a local outer loop to the control system itself. So for example, um, a well pump in an oil field, uh, if you put the, the intelligence into the well pump itself, it may be able, in fact, it can uh, determine things like issues with the pumping system itself and it's able to potentially self-correct. It can also send uh, telemetry then up to higher level systems. So if you're, if you're looking at the entire oil field, um, by, by sending um, information that's the result of the processing at the local pump, um, you can then take a look at the oil field as a whole at a higher level. So both the oil level or the oil pump level as well as the higher level become um, important and they become useful at the level and at the scope that they're, they're looking at. This requires information processing systems that allow local storage and local processing as, where, as well as shared data space so that the higher level systems have access to the information that's pertinent at different levels. So it's important to have a, a system that is able to scale um, up and down, so both vertically as well as horizontally, and it would be nice if that system was able to automatically both save and process information, but also transport useful information to other entities in the overall system that's interested uh, in that information. And I think that's probably about it on that topic. Let us dig a little deep here. The legacy thinking is dump all data, whether it's good data, bad data, whatever it is, dump it into the cloud because storage is cheap. We can then figure out what to do with the data. But network is still a bottleneck. And some of the real-time applications need compute to be closer to where data is generated. My question is, by using platforms that takes compute closer to where data is generated and processing it locally, are we creating silos? Does it lead to more siloed data systems and not allow us to have a more holistic look into what is happening in these systems? I would like to understand this especially in the context of industrial automation? No, actually, I think it does just the opposite. So by processing data locally, you're able to um, respond quickly to that information locally, potentially closing loops, but you're also able to determine what information is then useful to um, a higher levels or potentially peer level um, elements of the system. So if the system has a shared a globally shared data model then everything in the system potentially has access to the same information whether it's results or raw information um, and what this then does is it, it actually breaks down the silos because you have greater visibility across both the vertical as well as the horizontal space so i think um, it actually is is a better solution um, than just pushing everything into cloud. So in the cloud, you have everything in one place. Um, but the challenge there is that in order for the deeper uh, elements of the system to get at, you now have to push that data back down to them. Whereas if you have a system where peers can get in access to the information at a peer level without having to push it to some other uh, repository and then extract it back out of that repository, 
you now have a much more agile um, peer level system that breaks down the silos. So I think it does just the opposite. It doesn't build the silo, silos, it, it breaks it down. Um, the other thing is relative to um, you know, pushing everything to the cloud and using applications there, um, what I would suggest is that not only is there a network issue, but even if there wasn't, let's say we had infinite bandwidth um, and infinite storage in the cloud, the thing is that the complexity of the system at that level is large, very large. And it's, you end up doing things that you don't need to do at that higher level in the system. So in my opinion, the, the cloud is actually very useful on uh, solving problems that the cloud can provide scope to. So for instance, um, if there is information from a, a manufacturing site, uh, let's use um, let's use tape as an example. So manufacturing is making tape, and they have a machine that makes tape, and the same machine is used in 50 different locations around the world. Those 50 different locations, um, they're going to be running their machine locally. They're going to uh, want to optimize the performance of the machine locally. So they're going to want the machine to be able to act uh, in its own behalf locally. But there may be information uh, that is associated with the performance of the line that that you want to send to the to a higher level application than cloud. So things like production production information, line speeds, um, pressure sensors, temperatures, that kind of stuff may be sent to the cloud. So what's interesting about that is you can get two things from that. Uh, one is you can start you can start to determine patterns. Um, across multiple instances of the machine. So the manufacturer, the OEM that builds the tape machine may be able to look at, and this is done today, uh, they can look at these 50 different machines across the world and they're able to look at the patterns between machines and they're able to then, based on that information, uh, improve the design of the machine itself. The other thing that's interesting about what you have at the cloud level is that it can also take into account things that the machine doesn't have visibility to. So things like, what are the weather conditions? Um, was there an earthquake nearby? Is there movement in, uh, in the population? And those things may impact the production of the line. So the tape example is actually a good example. Uh, so I, I experienced this personally. It was secondhand. I heard this from some people uh, within the company. And there was a uh, tape machine, and in one place in the world, in South America, the exact same machine making the exact same material uh, of the other machines around the world, uh, the tape kept breaking. Well, after, an after analytics were applied, uh, which took into account the weather conditions across the world, it was able to determine that the humidity was slightly different in that one plant, and that's what was causing the tape to break. So the point is that the cloud has value, but it has value at the scope of visibility that it, that it provides. So getting back to the original point uh, to your question regarding the silos, I think that a system that can support a common shared data model and has inherent within it the ability to share useful information um, across both horizontal and vertical axes, then that actually breaks down uh, the silos.
Whereas today, we really have very siloed systems. You nailed it and cleared some misconception that exists in the industry. Having a shared data model is key. I absolutely agree with that. Let's now shift gears and talk about how Swim platform can help solve some of these challenges. So the, you know, a couple of the things that I think are key um, aspects of, of a solution like we're talking about, uh, we've, we've talked about a shared data model um, and it's a shared uh, virtual data model. So if you have a system that can store information um, either locally or in some other place, and that information is virtualized so that it doesn't really matter where it's physically stored, and you have a system that can provide access to that information for whatever entities in the system are interested in it, then uh, you, have, um, you have the basis on which you can build a system, and that is, in fact, what SWIM provides. So SWIM provides this fabric that both supports uh, the distributed data model as well as uh, intelligence um, across a wide spectrum of computing surfaces. So you can deploy the SWIM model, the SWIM system, um, on compute surfaces that happen to be available in the system, um, or you can uh, design and add a new compute uh, surface if necessary. Um, but because of the design of the SWIM application itself, or the, the SWIM fabric itself, uh, it doesn't really care whether it happens to be running on a Raspberry Pi or in a cloud. And so what that provides is it makes it easy for people that want to, to build and deploy a system. Uh, it makes it easy for them to focus on things like what is the functionality? Uh, what is the data that I'm interested in? Uh, what are the types of analytics that make sense for this machine? So one thing that we didn't mention uh, yet, and I want to make sure that we cover this, is that there's no magic uh, to analytics. There's no uh, magic to data processing systems. Uh, most of the systems that exist today are just very good um, uh, pattern matching systems. And it's not to discredit or, or bring down what the systems are today, um, but the thing is, is that a system can recognize a pattern, but unless you put it in context, it doesn't mean anything. It's not that useful. So what SWIM provides is it provides this fabric, this framework for building applications where people that are familiar with the application can add their application expertise. So they can easily, and, and I've looked at the code myself, uh, fairly easily identify, okay, here are the data elements that we know are useful because we've built these systems for, you know, 50 years. So we know these data elements are useful. We can also set up the system uh, to look at some other data elements that we think might be useful, but we're not sure. And we can look at developing uh, patterns out of that. And so um, it enables somebody to fairly easily and quickly build a system and because of the, the virtualized data model and because of the uh, inherent communication system, which we didn't talk really much about before, the inherent communication system that SWIM provides is that um, a designer of a system does not have to spend time setting up messaging and data communications and data transfer uh, capabilities within their system just so that the different elements can share the information. So that's, that's a real important aspect of what SWIM provides is that 
um, you can build an application and you can identify here's the information that, I, that I'm interested in and SWIM takes care of it for you. The other aspect of SWIM, which we didn't talk a lot about, is uh, the ability to support an autonomous agent architecture. So as we look at modeling systems moving forward into the future, um, and, and I think we're probably going to talk about this a little bit in, when we talk about envisioning uh, where the future is going. Um, we're looking at, at more autonomous agent-based type systems. So what SWIM does is it provides, again, a framework that, that you can build and model a system with agents that represent the different aspects of the system. And this is where the people that are familiar with the application become important because um, they, get, they get to determine uh, what is the granularity of the agent representation. So concrete example, I'll use the oil field example. Uh, it may be useful to, to uh, model that system where an agent represents a, a wellhead, you know, an oil pumping station. So in that case, the, the agent would live in the system um, basically as a digital twin of the oil pumping station, and it would monitor the station, it would do its diagnostics, it would potentially close local loops, it would potentially modify the operation, potentially send alarms, but it's operating as an independent element. Each one of the oil uh, pumping stations then gets represented as the same kind of agent, but with local uh, instance information, and they can share that information between them. Now, that would be one granularity. Within an oil pumping station, you may go to another level of granularity, and you may have agents that represent uh, the motor, another agent that represents uh, the pipe, another agent that represents some aspect of the local oil, you know, the local oil pumping station. So, this ability to uh, represent different pieces of the physical world as well as the virtual world as independent agents um, both simplifies the implementation of the agents themselves but it also then allows you for to build very complex systems with simple building blocks and because of the fabric that exists within SWIM the ability for those agents to interact with each other is inherent so this is a big deal you don't have to write uh, code in, uh, you know, in a control system architecture to get the information to transfer between them. You talked about the oil field use case. What are some other use cases with Zoom platform for, for the end users? Oh, sure. So I think there, there are some use cases that are just uh, pretty obvious. I mean, they're easy, they're easy uh, mapping to the SWIM, what SWIM provides. So Generally, those cases are things that would map into a distributed control architecture naturally. So things like the oil field, um, microgrids uh, would map into that, multi-path processes, so things like petrochemical, where you have um, different parts of the process that potentially are performed in different places at different times, you have different piping routes. Those are really good applications for SWIM. Um, some other applications, so these are general case applications. Um, a couple others would be distribution centers, so things like UPS or DHL or FedEx, where you've got multiple elements um, all operating at the same time, and the flow changes, and it's highly dynamic. So um, we didn't spend much time talking about the dynamic aspects, but one of the things that, that some of these systems have is a very dynamic aspect to them. 
Um, and then another type of system, which isn't really, uh, it, it's not machinery it's, itself, it's more kind of a virtualized system, and that is uh, MES systems, so things like scheduling systems. Um, those also have this dynamic and multi-element uh, aspect to them. So those are easy mappings to uh, the swim capability. Um, the other space, which is uh, is also highly prevalent within industrial automation, is the discrete manufacturing. Um, so that's that's a little bit more challenging because discrete manufacturing usually consists of uh, a single line process, um, and today they're historically created as a large monolithic system. Uh, they may have subcomponents, but it's basically a large uh, monolithic system. I think short term, the value of SWIM is that uh, it can it can certainly enhance the information processing. Um, SWIM can make use of uh, either unused compute surface that exists in systems today, in systems today, uh, or it could potentially be a a plug-in or add-on to a, a system. Um, I think in the short term, the application in discrete manufacturing is probably at the system level control. Um, long term. Uh, if it's able to be achieved, if, if this is able to be achieved, um, I think embedding the SWIM capability within OEM machines um, so that you're able to accomplish things like auto detection, um, uh, automatic identification of equipment and machinery. Uh, this would be uh, particularly useful in, uh, in machinery in, uh, where you need to be able to change the system uh, quickly. Uh, it may be useful in machinery or in systems where you're going to be changing the process and you will bring parts of the system online and offline, um, flexible manufacturing. So I think these are all different examples where um, in the long term it would be very useful. Um, and I think you know those are primarily the two major aspects of industrial automation. As we get closer to the end of the podcast, let's do some predictions. I would like to hear from you where the industrial automation will be five years from now and 10 years from now, and how the information systems are going to shape this evolution. Uh, yes. So, of course, it's, you know, no one can accurately predict the future. However, I think there are some things that are happening in the world at large. Um, and as I said before, um, industrial automation has an historically tended to follow the world at large, but it's lagged. Um, by as much as 10, 15, sometimes 20 years. Uh, as we mentioned before, I don't think that industrial automation can afford to do that anymore. So what are some of the things that um, are happening in the world at large? So uh, we talked a little bit before about um, the need to be agile. So um, the need to be able to change um, potentially your, con your control strategy or to be able to um, more quickly adapt to customization requirements on the part of uh, customers. Um, this whole idea of embedding intelligent agents within machines and within systems themselves and the ability to collaborate with each other, um, both in the, in the small or the, the machine micro level as well as at the large system scale, that's becoming more and more important. Um, the diminishing workforce is causing uh, a need for really two things. One is uh, intelligent machines that can uh, self-modify 
and can predict their own future state and can interact with other machines that can do the same thing so that they can optimize either the, the ongoing performance of a line or can uh, predict when a line is, is potentially failing. Those are things that are going to be necessary, uh, both from the fact that we, there's a diminishing um, uh, workforce, but also um, in some cases there are plants that are becoming mostly or fully automated. So the ability for a plant to basically run itself and then provide monitoring information to some uh, other off-site location that either a, a team of people or potentially, again, looking way into the future, potentially supervisory level AI systems uh, could then monitor remotely um, at a high level. Um, they're probably not going to, I don't foresee within the next 15 years uh, having a web application running a cookie making machine. That's probably not likely. However, uh, being able to supervise that and being able to, from a central location, both monitor the operation as well as uh, deploy uh, corrective means. That certainly is something that will happen. That's happening today in things like oil rigs, where it's the, the dollar cost of doing maintenance on an oil rig is really high. Um, so I think those are things that um, that will be coming out. And we see this happening in the world at large. So. Um, over the past couple of years, as I've been watching the evening news, I think I see reports on uh, autonomous agent um, architectures. So things like mapping of uh, battlefields with drones, each running as an autonomous agent. Um, and there are also some private sector applications that I've seen on the news in the past uh, year or two. So this whole concept of intelligent uh, entities. So whether it's a physical machine, or whether it happens to be a virtual entity running in a virtual environment someplace in the cloud, I think that's that's kind of the way that things seem to be moving. So um, I think SWIM, with its technology, is well is well positioned to provide the underlying technology that would enable uh, that tech, uh, capability um, in the industrial automation space. Thanks, Michael, for your time. This was a very informative podcast. And I learned a lot about industrial automation. In fact, thank you for making the point that processing locally doesn't lead to data silos as long as you have a shared data, data model. I think that is important and many people miss that. Thank you. Thanks for joining SwimStream's podcast. I'm looking forward to having you in another episode sometime in the future. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank you very much. And it was uh, fun and looking forward to maybe dig into some of these areas in a little bit more detail in the future. That was a great podcast with Michael. I want to thank Swim.ai for supporting me in running the SwimStreams podcast. I'm already looking forward to the next episode of this podcast, where we will be discussing some smart city use cases. See you soon.